now I feel in a much better place and I'm part of a, a podcast, a co-host of The Aftermath. And The Aftermath is a podcast for people that are interested in or struggling with custody, parental alienation, and things like this, because that's certainly what happened to me. It was a contested custody situation and parental alienation. The wife did everything she possibly could to keep our child away from me. Do you need encouragement to turn tragedies into your own triumphant life story? If so, this podcast is for you. you. Listen to powerful guests who have persevered through challenges so you can gain strength to build your championship life. The host of Professor of Perseverance Podcast, Dr. James Perdue. Hey, come on in. It's that time again for us to get some inspiration, some motivation, something that when we know life comes around, it's just a kick in the teeth, and we can go back to our experience, something we've learned that can help us get through our trials and tribulations. And once we know we're on the other side, we can help someone else pay it forward kind of thing. Today, our topic, we're going to talk about um, what happens during, you know, the end of the relationship, divorcing time, and all that that goes on. I've, I've never experienced a marriage, a divorce, and so I just learn and pay the listen here and learn something, and, and if I ever get in a situation, I can fall back on some of these things. So uh, welcome to the show, Mick Smith. Hey, thank Smith, you so much. The AKA the Doctor of Digital. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of a, a- tag team here we got the professor of perseverance and the doctor of digital so there we go we got a team here today we're going to hit them from both ends so <laughs> i want the top end though so uh i don't want to mess with that bottoms ends so <laughs> get them on both ends so hey i tell people don't get all excited about my professor or anything with my doctor degree because i can't write out a prescription but i can drive you to your local pharmacist if you need me to Right. Sounds good. Yeah. So I have academic background myself. So, I mean, that's what we, I guess we share that in common. There we go. Good deal. Well, we're learning a few things. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania here. I got a little source on that one. And we got a friend, Dom, that introduced us. Hey, Dom, I hope you can check it in later. I hope you're here. And thank you for hooking us up here to meet uh, Mr. Mick and going from there. So, all right, Mick. So, uh, appreciate you. And, uh, also, author, let's put your book up here, author of the uh, Burning America and in the best interest of the children with a question mark, with a question mark. So Burning America in the best interest of the children. I like the drawing. That'd be my type of drawing. I can do that type, Not, but, yep. I, but I couldn't do it that good. So <laughs> It's a kid's drawing, and I thought it was very appropriate to put it on the cover. And it yeah, can even yeah. tell you if you're interested yeah so you know, like i said it's a, I, I like it but uh, i couldn't i couldn't do that good so uh from there all right mr mick let's uh go and get started um again i'm providing a platform for you to take off and we're going to hang in and i'll do what i tell people i'll get my two cents worth and with inflation that's a nickel uh but we know it's still only valued at two cents so <laughs> yep Sounds good. So I guess I tell you a little bit about that. The the novel, it's a wrote it as a novel, though it's a realistic novel. So a lot of things that are in there where people ask me, did that really happen or that really occur? And I go, well, I'm a fairly creative individual. However, 
the things that you can't believe could actually happen. Those are the true parts. And that's what I put in there. So I said, I was going through this personal perseverance kind of experience, which is, I guess, why oh. I on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Hold up right there. Now you said the magic word perseverance. So hold on before we go any further. Let me uh, give you a nice fist bump. <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I feel bumped now, so that's a good thing. <laughs> there we go. So, all right, yeah, so you said the word, Terry. I had to go in and fist bump you. All right, so go ahead. Go ahead and take off again now. And really, it's a story of, of well, do I get a bump again? I don't know. I'm going to no, say no, the no, word no, again. You only get one fist bump. Oh, okay, we're one, gonna, okay. We're not going to stop every time we say it, so. <laughs> one, one to a customer. There so, you go. <laughs> to persevere, I had a story that I thought was worthwhile telling, and it was something that happened. I never expected it. So the first line in the novel is, no parent prepares for a child to be taken. That's how it starts. And that's absolutely the case. So for a lot of us, we prepared, well, what's the religious upbringing of our child? What school is she going to attend? What kind of clothes should she wear? What kind of friends should she have? What are relationships with the family? All kinds of things. But most parents don't prepare for your child to be taken. Well, that's exactly what happened. So my wife would take off from time to time when I would come home from work, but there was one day that I pulled up in the driveway and everything was gone. And when I say everything, I mean literally everything. I could see it from the driveway. So furniture is gone. I called the bank accounts. Bank accounts are stripped. All So I had what I had in my pocket. I had all of $5.85 in my pocket. Literally, that's mm -hmm. what I had to my name. Well, those are all just things and it's just property. The problem was the fact that when I walked in the door, I found a note tucked in the John Bonet Ramsey child murder. And some of you remember that story from some years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was a note from my wife saying, I'm going to go for a little while. But I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Why is that in that particular book? And our child was only five years old at the time. So I tried to track her down, call the school, try to find friends and who might have had her. No one had said, except when I did find out that one of the neighbors had her at one time. So I started driving around local town, the local town, and I flagged down a cop. And I said, well, I had not gotten a hold of her. I'm not sure where our child is. How about if you call the friend, maybe you can get some information out of them, which the police officer did. And over the police radio, I did find out where my child was. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time. She's in California. So oh, wow. 3,000 miles away. So, yes, that was kind of my reaction. Oh, wow. Now what do I yeah. do? So without any note or any hint before, I just found myself in a situation with I'm completely broke now, other than $5.85. I have no assets whatsoever. How do I get this child back into the home? So I remained in the family home and I never left. But my idea was, well, this should be fairly simple. I've just got to get the kid back into the state. Turns out that the whole court process, and that's the subtitle of the novel as well, and the best interests of the children with a question mark, because everyone tells you what they are doing is in the best interest of the child. That was not my experience at all. So oh, yeah, the, I could, yeah, I could see the best interest lies in different views. I can see that. I had a friend uh, similar uh, with the bank account mm -hmm. that uh, him and the wife were getting a divorce. And now all of a sudden one day she, the, her lawyer had told him to empty out everything. She, she at first she was reluctant saying, well, I just can't do that to him, you know, because it's, you know, it's, no, take it all. 
And yes, she sure enough uh, took it because the lawyer said to. <laughs> Didn't leave him with anything, food, money, or like you said, $5 in your pocket. That may have been $5 more than he had in his. <laughs> and that's what you find out. I mean, again, I had never been in this process. I'm uh, practicing Roman Catholic Christian and really valued marriage, just what the Bible says. This is what I had expected in my life. So this was a surprise and a shocking surprise at that. But what I had done is wanted to concentrate on getting the child returned because that was the most important thing to what I thought were the most stable parts of her life, which was her home and her school. Because for small children, that's what I think they rely on more than anything mm -hmm. else. And, and yes, this, you were talking about in the best interest with at the beginning with all this uh, going on um, in Pennsylvania, California. I bet it's a big tooth pulling festival because of two different states doing their own thing and trying to do what's best for the ch children, child. And and you find that there are a lot of players involved. And this is what you find as people have gone through the so-called process that mm -hmm. attorneys have an interest, the counselors, the psychiatrists have an interest, the judges have an interest, the neighbors have an interest. So really when it says, and the phrase is the best interest of the child, that's really not the case at all because everyone yeah. else has their interest and they are working for their interests and not for the children's interests. And that's what I found. But of course, this is what the eye-opening experience was mm -hmm. for me and like a lot of other people they find out and you have no preparation for this type of situation but to try to get the child back and you're right it's a little bit more complex in that the states have different ways of going through a process such as this there's no really rhyme nor reason that you find that in individual cases there's no set procedure and a lot of parents will find out that what you have done, unfortunately, when you go to the court, if you read the fine prints at fine print, as I did, it says, actually, the court has custody. So think about that for a moment. You just turned over your flesh and blood to the state. And that is not a reassuring thing because parents are the primary caregivers of children and not the state. And that was my two cents, but you find out, well, I got stuck in this situation. I yeah, got to yeah. get out of that situation and back return to her home or return wholly, which is marital home, the school and what have you. Yeah, I can see the issue with me would be, I see how the state spends my money. And if you're spending the money, treat my child the way you're spending my money, I definitely want to get her out of there as much as possible, quick as possible. And this is one thing I, you know, when people ask for advice or when people are saying what you should you do? Well, I mean, for the first thing I would recommend is for a couple, first of all, don't get in this situation if you can avoid it. Yes. If you can negotiate and if you can cooperate with that partner. And I always say something like, you know, I know they squeeze the toothpaste out of the middle of the tube and it's going to drive you crazy but you have a child here, which is much more important. Try to get along, try to work it out outside of the court. First of all, if you find yourself in that situation, well, then a lot of us look for resources and ways to heal through this because it is a very difficult way to get through. Or if you're in that situation, think about trying to include your partner in the parenting and what people would say is the co-parenting of a child. So there are some really great organizations. The National Parent Organization has done a great job 
of being very active in legislatures across the state, all 50 states. And they really advocate co-parenting based on the solid research. And this is, again, we're both academics, you know, peer-reviewed research shows mm -hmm. consistently that you want to have both parents involved, even if they're separated, even if they're divorced, but is the best for the child. The statistics are just brutal when you start looking at a single parent home. And it's not to say children can't come out of a single parent home successfully, but the, the odds are stacked against them. And that's why you have to really consider co-parenting when it comes to behavior, which is not best for a child. They take more chances. They turn to chemicals and drugs sooner. They're sexually active sooner. There's all kinds of statistics on this to show that really a child needs both parents. So co-parent if at all possible and try to get along. And of course, this is what I tried to do. It didn't work out that way at all, but it was a very difficult situation. So it nearly took about three and a half years to get the child returned fully to the home. And there were some really odd and bizarre things that took place during that time. My wife didn't want me to have the child for some reason, who knows why, but what she would do if the child came home briefly, I would take her to the door. She would get into the car with the mom. Mom would go down literally three doors down the street and drop the child off at a neighbor's house. That neighbor had warned me, and it was certainly the case. If I came anywhere near that house, I'm going to get arrested. So the way I explain it in the novel is my child was right down the street a thousand miles away because she might have been yeah. a thousand miles away. I couldn't go anywhere Might near as well be, yeah. And mom would take off. So I would say, very bizarre. I mean, why not just leave her with me rather than take yeah. the neighbor? But this is what happened. This is how things turned out. And so I had to, once again, persevere. Got to hang in there. Think that there must be a purpose. You know, I believe deeply in God. I was leaning on God through this entire time because it was a very difficult period. But I also said, I am never, ever going to walk away from my child. She's 50% of me, 50% of the wife. She is my flesh and blood. And I'm going to do everything possible that I can to return her to the home. And that's eventually what happened. But it's always like, well, the towards the end of the story and the end of the novel, it does have a surprise because it is a tragedy. And it's a tragic story at that. Mm. Uh, now let me ask this question here. You came home and the house is empty. Again, $5 in your pocket. Did you see any of this coming or were you as like, you was like, what's going on here? I thought we had a good marriage. I thought things were going great. Uh, or did, I mean, did you have, you know, signals, fights, anything, any way of knowing that she was unhappy? I think, you know, like most couples, I found out that we actually had very good preparation. So I would say I can't blame the church because the church really does go into extensive questions and answers that you have to go through with your potential partner. Highly recommend that before you ever get involved with someone. And every church is different. But in our church, we had all these great questions and we had all the answers. So from my point of view, I thought, okay, well, we're pretty much set because they ask you detailed questions on all kinds of things, intimate things, financial things, physical things. It really runs the entire gamut. The problem is, of course, if you're dealing with a human being and we're all human and we're sinful and fallible, we don't always live up to the ideal. And that's what I found. I also found that during the course of the marriage, things I was not aware of before we got married, 
And maybe my wife wasn't either because she started seeing some therapists and they started pulling things out of her background that I was completely unaware of. I had no idea. And, you know, she had probably repressed memories that were very uncomfortable and traumatic. And so I have to think, well, that probably has had a lot to do with what she actually decided to do. And it was not necessarily her and I. I just think she was dealing with some things. I call it what you want, but she had some demons in her past. and. She had to get past them, and this is how it manifested itself in some really horrible things and some traumatic events. After opening it up to the uh, therapist, did she regress back into some of that, and that played a part of it, I'm assuming? I believe so, because if you look at some of the deep psychological points of her life, and I did put include it in the novel because, again, it's the realistic elements that I was not aware of. Mm-hmm. But through the course of the therapy, she actually felt as though her mother was very deficient in terms of expressing and feeling, expressing love towards her. So that's a huge hole to fill, and nobody can fill that. I mean, a marriage won't, and an adopted family, an in-law family can't because we certainly tried, and my family certainly did, embraced her as completely as a daughter-in-law. And it wasn't enough. And as a background of her childhood, she was one of 10 children. So, I mean, some of that plays a role. She was the ninth of 10 children. So it's almost like the ultimate middle child syndrome, right? You yeah. know, you're not the oldest, you're not the youngest, and you're just one of those several people that are in the middle. And I think that had a lot to do with her psychological makeup that she didn't really feel as though her mother loved her and expressed, and it came out in therapy. She also experienced some really traumatic things that turned out in therapy that she was molested as a child. She was in high school and the mom did not come to her aid, which to me is kind of mind boggling as a parent. I mean, you would that do would anything. Be, that would be, yes. Parent. But yeah, had to play a role in her head. I mean, it's got to disturb somebody. And I understand it. That's why I think looking back, I mean, people ask, you know, are you angry? Or are you upset? I go, well, you know, it's water under the bridge. I can't judge other person. It certainly was a horrible situation. It's terrible if you read the novel. But the thing is, I, you know, I can't take it personally. She obviously was struggling with all kinds of things mentally and physically. And that's how it worked out. You know, I tell people when things happen bad for me, it's two words. It's just life. Yeah, it's just the stuff that mm-hmm. happens. That's all it is. Just life. Just deal with it. How did um now you're talking one child, one, two child, one three, child. one yeah, child. Cer- certainly okay, so, we would have had more, but yeah, yeah, the way it turned out, only one child. And how long we are married before all this took place? This, we're married thirteen years. Okay, so it's it's a long long thread right there. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I mean it was 13 years altogether because I, I never divorced her because again, believing in marriage, I said, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to struggle through this as m- long as possible. So it was 13 years altogether, but about five years, really seven, eight years into the marriage itself is when this sort of all blew up in our faces. Our daughter was five at the time. Okay. So. Yeah. That's what I was getting to. How long were you married? I guess before all yeah. this took place. So, yeah. uh, so I, I wouldn't think in about staying marriage. Uh, 13 total marriage, but about seven of it, six or eight of it, whatever, um, happily married, according to you, uh, yeah. not, not knowing. Yeah. That's six years into the marriage is when six. this. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Still, that's a good long thread still to, for uh, stuff to come back. Wow. 
And again, again, I don't have a dog in the fight on this one because I've never been married. But uh, uh, I don't do this like I used to. But you, you go to high school, people, you know, we grow all grow up. Then I see some friends I went to school with, and they've been married and they're divorced. And of course, they're bitter as hell and everything with divorce going on. And and after about like the fourth person I met in high school, they're telling about their divorce. And again, I've never experienced. And then finally, one time, I just go, I can't wait to get married so I can get a divorce. You know, being smart mouth back at them, you know, I'm thinking, Good. but, but I've never been in it. So uh, either way, you know, marriage or divorce. So uh, really, I shouldn't have made that comment. But uh, uh, if y'all are ever listening, I apologize for that. Really, I that was young and dumb and I, I shouldn't have talked like that. But uh, I guess I got just got tired of hearing it because I've never been married, I guess. I don't know. But man. I mean, I hate it. I hate it when I hear about divorces now because, again, especially if children are involved. And I'm like you. If if we're going to, if we, there's going to be a divorce. Please fake it while the kids are around that everybody's on good terms. You can still have your little thing when the children is not around against the other adult and whatever. But when the children walks in the door. Put the good old smiley face and let them know that things are still going. Don't make them miserable. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, if people ask during this really horrible time, because it's about three and a half years, and they said, well, why don't you get divorced? And they go, well, you know, the oath says till death do you part. So I go, well, that's what I'm going to do. I, you know, I stood before God and man, and that's what I said, and I'm accountable for it. So uh, as difficult as it was, that's what I was attempting to do. And I agree with your point, too. The way I think of it is children don't ask to be born, right? You know, they didn't have a choice in this. You decided and you had life created between you and another human being. And that child came out of love in some ways. And you got to stand up and be accountable for that and make life as best as you possibly can. Because it's the first thing you realize when you do have a child. So we're in the hospital, right? And there's nurses and technicians and the doctors and all these people running around. Then you get the kid home, which we did. Kids in the bassinet. We had her in the living room and start looking around. I go, well, where all those people go? You know, because you yeah. realize all of a sudden, like, they're not here anymore. You know, you're it. So and where is that baby raising guidance book we thought we were going to get? Yes. You know, where's, where's the nannies? You know, don't they yeah. come take care of them? No, you find <laughs> out really quickly, like, oh, no, this little life form here is completely dependent on you. So you got to figure out what Talking do they about need. about hands-on training. Yep. And, you know, where I say there's a idea, they don't come with a an instruction manual, right? So this is a human being. Yeah, yeah. That's and, what I was saying about the manual. Yeah. Sure. So. Hey, now I mentioned that I've never been married, been th never been through a divorce, but let's realistically go back and say I have been through one divorce. That's when my mom divorced mm -hmm. my dad. We talked about this briefly before we got started, uh, my dad, before my first birthday. And their relationship was part of how I was raised, right? Sure. Depending on when they're slamming and throwing things or when they're in a good mood. And it, it, you know, helps shape me. That's why I'm saying everybody needs to be in the, the, the best, fake it the best you can when the child's in the same room mm -hmm. with you, okay, uh, to be on that best thing. But what I'm getting to with mine is 
my dad never had an active role after the divorce. I never got a birthday card, never got a Christmas card, never got a phone call, nothing like he was out of the picture. He had nothing to do with us. And he passed away when I was 12 years old. He -hmm. was 35, died of cancer. But before he passed away, my mom had found out from friends or whatever. And she sent word to him that if you want to see your son before you die, you know, she'll bring us to the hospital. My brother and older brother made to him to see. He never sent word to everyone to see us. And that's why I told you, you know, before we got started, that my stepfather, I consider as my dad, that uh, he busted my butt when I needed it. And he loved me when I needed it. And uh, again, uh, my butt needed busting pretty good when I was younger. Uh, so not to say I would never wanted to meet my real dad, but I think with him out of the picture and we didn't have that. And my mom never hardly brought him up. If my brother and I mm-hmm. said he brought him up or anything, she would mention or try to say, but she was never negative about him. So we didn't, we didn't get a real bad thing. She just didn't even talk about him at all. So, so that's what I'm getting to. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing my own form of therapy here, but, uh, uh, but yeah, what I'm saying is just play the game when the children are there to keep everything as positive as possible. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. So what they call fake it to make it. And that's what I agree with you completely. And I think it's unfortunate that there are so many parents and a lot of fathers who do these things and walk away from the children. And this is something I said, well, it's not going to happen for me. And I think the system itself, what I call the custody industry, that's what they expect. And it's very difficult. So for the first time, I understand why some parents walk away. All of a sudden, you've got a lot more expenses. You're supplying enough money or trying to for two different households a lot of time. And sometimes the pain is just too much, the pain of separation, which a lot of people don't recognize, but a lot of men experience this. A lot of fathers do as well. I just decided really from day one, that's not going to be me. I'm not walking away. And no matter how hard things got, and they were extraordinarily difficult with the opposition of lawyers, psychiatrists, judges, masters, attorneys, neighbors, everybody. I said, well, I'm not walking away. It's my child and I'm going to do everything I can. It's either going to kill me or she's returning home. It's one or the other. And a lot of times they did feel like, yeah, I'm not going to make it, but yeah, yeah. I did. I survived. Now I had this one woman that was on my podcast a uh, year, uh, two years ago, I guess it is. And I, I don't, I don't remember her name. I have to go back and look to, or listen to the podcast, but her husband started having an affair and they divorced. Husband ended up marrying the woman he was having an affair with. And the ex-wife, she said that they, she finally got to the point where her and the woman mistress became pretty good friends. Hmm. And they openly, and then she eventually remarried too. But she and them, because they had these children behind, between sure. That he had, nice, yeah. You know, going back and forth with the kids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, co-parenting. Like I said, that uh, she and a other with a ex-husband and the wife, and then her husband, they pretty much decided they were just going to group raise. Not that they moved in the same house, but you know, mm-hmm. they would openly talk to each other what we expect and what not to, and I think it's great to be open. 
And one thing was we don't argue in front of the kids. We don't talk bad about anybody in front sure. of the kids, you know, and, and they, they basically made it, you know, a two house growing parenting, uh, yeah, if the child got in trouble with one home and thinks he can get away with everything at the second home, you mm-hmm. know, they're calling ahead, say, letting you know this, 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 and this is the punishment, so don't let them. And yeah, but she was talking about how they were, yeah, that everybody involved, even the mistress, that uh, she ended up liking her and becoming friends. And yeah, but, and I think that was great for the kids, for them to to have all that. So Yeah, the, the kids feel... You know, when uh, we have a, a a podcast that's on this topic and talking to the experts, and this is one thing that they'll all point out, the child often will feel as though it's somehow their fault, mm-hmm. or they'll also feel as though, well, if your love ended for your partner, your wife or your husband, your love will end for me as well. So you have to reassure okay. children all the time, no, this is not your fault. No, this is not the kind of love that's going to end. And we always have to reassure the child and make sure you have that stable basis or foundation. And so if you can cooperate with someone, yes, I mean, think of the child. This is where the the subtitle of the novel and the best interest of the child or children comes into play. Do what's in the best interest of that child or children. If you put them first and you can cooperate with other people, then it's going to be much healthier for that child and much more stable. The child needs to know that they are loved no matter what the situation is, whether it's a mistress, whether it's a mother, a father, or some combination, grandparents, whatever it is. And a great example of it is actually my mom. My mom is from a very small town in upstate Pennsylvania, and she really didn't know her father at all. If she thought the guy who might have been her father, was sort of the town drunk. And that's a really horrible thing way back when, back in the day, Mm -hmm. if anything. But he had no part of her upbringing at all. And her mother dropped her off at my grandfather and aunt's house when she was four years old. It was either that or she was going to an orphanage. So she was raised by my grandfather and my great aunt, but they provided love for her. And that was the important part. She always felt love. She always felt that she had a family. And they took her in and therefore she just reversed whatever bad things happened to her because I've asked her since that time. I go, well, mom, I mean, I know a lot of people think they have the greatest mother in the universe, but I know I do. So I asked her, how did you ever do this? I mean, you didn't have a mother and a father as a role model. She said, well, my father and I, when your father and I, when we agreed to get married, we decided that we were going to put the children first. And I go, yeah, she just did the opposite of how she was raised. I go, well, yeah. I guess that's what you do. Yeah. But you, you break the cycle is what some people would say. Yeah. Break that cycle. Yeah. You yeah. Yeah. Eat whatever bad or whatever evil thing happened to you do the opposite. Now you said three and a half years. Finally, the, you got the child back. I did. Oh, so and- in Pennsylvania, California, are you flying every other weekend back to see the child or how are y'all doing the visitations then until well, you get, and then the next question is how is she toward you after being three and a half years over California? And I say California is the worst thing ever. I'm not saying that, but the environment, mom and dad, uh, mom, uh, I don't know if she's with anybody then, but, uh, and then the divorce and everything, how, how is she, after yeah, there's a couple of things that play into this. Well, 
first of all, when this incident initially happened, I went to court thinking I had a really good case as being a mm -hmm. primary caregiver, which I did because we had been living in California. Our daughter was born in California. We moved okay, to okay, Pennsylvania okay. after she was only 10 weeks old. Okay. So I had a position, speaking of the academic side, I had a position that was beginning in January of 1994. Our daughter was born in May, but since July of 1993 until January of 1994, my wife was working double shifts because my position didn't start. So guess who was at home with the child that entire time? I was. So from the time she was two months old up until January of 1994, I was home. So I was the one who put her to bed. I got her up in the morning. I changed her diapers. I fed her. I did all of that. So I said to my attorney, the initial one, because I had two, I said, well, isn't this fairly simple and straightforward? All you have to do is subpoena the records where my wife was working to show that she was working double shifts. She wasn't even home during that time. They didn't go for that. And that's why I said, you know, they don't really make sense. And mm -hmm. there is no rhyme, nor reason. I could get her back into the state, which I did. But my wife continued this sort of the same pattern would take her to other places. I wouldn't know exactly where our daughter was. She was with the people that I had no idea or I had no sense of who she was with. So we did have that foundation from when she was a very small child. So the transition when I got her back full time really was fairly easy. It was certainly no chaos and it was a strong foundation. I got her return to her, both her school and her home, the only home that she'd ever known. And so it was just moving back into the fact that, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And we mentioned the novel itself and the illustration on the picture. The reason I wanted that particular picture on the cover was the fact that during this psychiatrist evaluation, that picture worked against me, which was one of the strangest things of the entire story. A child is asked, and when she's very small, so she was only like five or six at that time, the psychiatrist takes the mom, the dad, and the child or children to talk to them and said, with a small child, rather than talking so much, draw a picture of your family. So what does she draw? She draws a picture, and you can see the beard. It was obviously me she drew a picture mm -hmm. of. Is that the one that's on the front of your book? That's the one on the cover illustration, yes. So you see the guy with the beard, and that was her picture, her illustration mm -hmm. of the family. She saw it as, I'm the caregiver. I'm the one who took care of her as a baby. Mm -hmm. Now, the odd thing about that, a psychiatrist looked at that very same picture, came out of the therapy, and he said, I kid you not, it's in writing, black and white. Well, the father is too close with the child. I go, what are you talking about? But wow. you just ask the child to be honest. You just ask the child not to choose between mommy or daddy, but just draw a picture of the family. Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel yeah. loved? She did. She was honest. And yet the evaluation said, oh, well, that can't be true. We're going to still return the child to the mother. I mean, it wow. was just... It's just crazy. So I said, that's why that picture I thought was really important to be on the cover. So even the best of situations and the best of what a child would be saying as a preference didn't work out. And it seemed to make sense. Why would she draw a picture like that? Well, because I was the caregiver. And so when she returned home, it was she was eight years old at that time. It was very smooth. It was just like old times. Okay. It's just that I 
really missed out on her upbringing yes. between those ages of five and eight, which is a crucial time, which is why parents should be co-parenting. They need both parents in their lives at all times. Yeah. I've learned and, uh, and not everybody, so don't, people don't be yelling and screaming at me, not everybody, but I've learned that some people are sometimes too smart for their own good, that, uh, they lack the common sense from where they're too smart in the book sense way and want to overthink things. And now that get back to the overthink thing, we as human beings get into the rut of overthinking instead of keeping things simple. But again, I, I, I've learned there's some people who are just too smart for their own good. <laughs> so, wow. It's I mean, certainly the case. Picture, like you said, they didn't ask to pick and choose, just draw a picture of the family. Yeah, just she draw did, a family. Where do you feel comfortable? And it, and it backfired, on, backfired on you. And, of course, she and would her. have known it at that age. Yeah, exactly. Her. You know, this is, this is what I really felt. Of course, she couldn't say yes, all that i guess but maybe not even think it that way but uh, at that age but you know, yeah yeah uh, it ultimately it backfired on her for being honest yes it's uh wow. you know if you don't want to tell a child to lie which you never did you tell the yeah. child to be truthful and that was one of those frustrating parts about the entire process i go well the child was honest you asked her she gave you an answer so what you didn't like her answer so you yeah. ignored her the meaning that they often they being the psychiatrists or judges or attorneys, they have their own interests at stake and oh, they yeah. want to see it the way they want to see it, regardless of the evidence. The evidence should have been predominant during that period of time. And it really wasn't. So I'd say, yeah, that when the child is said it's too close and I wasn't even there to give you an example. I mean, I yeah. wasn't even in the room, but during that evaluation, you start reading some really strange things, which I didn't know. The psychiatrists themselves evaluated and said, well, mother shouldn't leave the child alone as much. So, I mean, I thought was, I was shocked. What do you mean? She's leaving her alone? So apparently she was. And the psychiatrist itself, court appointed by the court, said what the child should do if she feels lonely or afraid is to go outside mom's apartment and start looking for people to help her. I go, I mean, I'm just, I find it, it's mind boggling. What do you mean? You're telling a wow. small child to go around yeah. and some random adult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Some, some adult. That's right. Yeah. That has no anybody. clue. Yeah. Has no clue on right or wrong. The stranger danger thing. And wow. I can't believe that piece of information. There so, it is. You read uh, it. It's in black and white. I mean, it was just shocking. Read uh, it. There it is. Burn in America and the best interest of the children by Mick Smith. So Mick, we're going to leave it here, man. I think you've given us enough to get the inquiry to want to go get this book, this novel and everything. I do have a question here that, um, what time frame was this? What years? Yeah, that's uh, actually, it's a little bit dated. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of this is water under the bridge for me personally. And that's why I'd like to try to help some other people. So for us, this was occurring between 1998 and 2001. So it's back a while and I have some distance and objectivity and it's a lot of water under the bridge. But I also mentioned that now I feel in a much better place and I'm part of a, a podcast, a co-host of The Aftermath. And The Aftermath is a podcast for people that are 
interested in or struggling with custody, parental alienation, and things like this, because that's certainly what happened to me. It was a contested custody situation and parental alienation. The wife did everything she possibly could to keep our child away from me. Do you think, here's a question, the reason I asked time frame, back then, what, 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, more yep. than 10, uh, plus 10, something like that, um, do you think today would have been a different decision? And the answer to that question is an emphatic no, which is why I always say people okay. really need okay. to be aware of this. And that's why I entitled the book Burning America, because a lot yeah. of people will tell you that the children are our future, which they are. But this is really hurting the country and particularly children, because yeah. everyone has understood, I think, today it hasn't really happened. And to give you a really solid example of this. I sat on the shelf, this novel for quite a long time, but the exact same thing happened to my best buddy. And I go, that was it. That just pushed me over the edge. I said, I got to get this story out because nothing has changed. His wife did the same exact thing, took their child from California to the East coast, 3000 miles away from him. And mm. that's extraordinarily frustrating. I said, I got a story I got to tell people. And that's why I'm also glad to be a yeah. part of the co-host on the aftermath as well. We try to address these issues. The aftermath. That's your the podcast aftermath. with that. Uh, when, uh, when, uh, mentioning, uh, when, I tell you what, we're at the point here. Let's go ahead and throw out your social media. We'll put the book up again. Uh, any websites people get to you talk about the, your podcast? Sure. Yep. The aftermath, custody, parental alienation, and healing. And that's really the key because everyone who goes through this sort of process, like myself and others, my phenomenal legislative tiger co-host Kendra also is doing this currently. So she's still in the midst of it. And we have a great segment called He Said, She Said. We try to give a male and female mother-father perspective on this because she has been alienated from her children. So anybody who goes through this process feels really alone. You feel as though people aren't listening because a lot of times they are not, but we will listen. We have experts on and we try to give tips and hints on healing. So that would be a great place to look for this. And also Burning America is available on Amazon and some other places as well. You can also get in touch with me. I'm the doctor of digital and all kinds of places. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Substack. I'm uh, my own podcast. So I'm easy to get a hold of. Just Google me, find me online. I'll be more than happy to help out anybody. There we go. Do the old Googling. That's right. So, and we'll put the information in the show notes as well to make it a little easier on some people. So, all right. Um, Mick, well, this has been an amazing story. Uh, I'm glad you hung in there and fought for the daughter because uh, she's she's got to know how much you love her by not giving up. And so uh, from there. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, your relationship with her has uh, got, got to be uh, back to uh, your normal, even though the yeah. therapist would discount that. So, uh, all right. I don't want to throw too much away because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not a therapist, so maybe I'm maybe I'm looking at it wrong instead of the more common sense way. I don't know. So, all right, Mick, but thank you for being here. And uh, I, again, you got a pod, you got a voice for your podcast, so I wish I had your voice. But uh, you got a truly amazing story with this. And again, you're going to help other dads and right. women that are going through the alienation with their children from what's from separation and divorce. Mm -hmm. That yes. you're going to be able to help them. Uh, from there so well thank you for being on everybody else share us out to someone that you know that can use some inspiration so a little bit of guidance reach out to uh, mick 
the uh, doctor of digital. It uh, Maybe he can give you some advice and help you. So I'm Dr. James Perdue, the professor of perseverance. Do something today, tomorrow, something next week that's going to help you persevere past your paralysis. Thanks for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast. For motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. For more information, go to Facebook at Professor of Perseverance. Visit the website at professorofperseverance.com and view the YouTube channel, Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance.